Hello everyone, my name is Andrew, and welcome to MIR Meets. Today's episode was absolutely delightful to partake in. Alyssa Rosenberg writes about the intersection of culture and politics for the Washington Post's opinion section. Part of the reason why this conversation was so delightful was because we spent much of our conversation going on tangents, happily hopping from disconnected topic to disconnected topic. Still, if I had to tether our conversation to a single theme, it would be this, our cultural environment, the types of values and actions that it tends to support, and what it says about us as a society. Hope you enjoy. Alyssa Rosenberg, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So to begin, let's start at the beginning. Uh, would you mind explaining the situation regarding the Cardiff Philharmonic Orchestra and the decision that they made back in early March? Uh, the poor Cardiff Philharmonic. So this is a uh, Welsh orchestra made up of volunteers, you know, people who can play at a high level but aren't professional. It's not like the Boston Symphony Orchestra or something. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, they decided to suspend a planned performance of um, some Tchaikovsky music that they were initially going to play. And the internet, of course, went bananas, deriding this as an example of sort of over-the-top cultural cancellation. And if you thought about it for a moment, you know, what the orchestra was trying to do was to be sensitive to the broader global situation. The program that they had planned was music that had been commissioned specifically or that was about Russian military triumphs, specifically sort of expansionist Russian military triumphs. And you know, they had um, a member of the orchestra who had family in Ukraine, I believe, and they just decided it wasn't the right time for those particular pieces of music. So. In reality, it was actually an incredibly nuanced and culturally literate decision. They weren't not playing music by Russian composers. They, in fact, had music by Russian composers um, planned for later in their season. They just didn't want to play music that was specifically, you know, written to be sort of rah, you know, rah rah gung ho. You know, let's like let the Tsar's armies invade things effectively. <laughs> and so, you know, it. It was less a story about the response to Russian culture around the world and more a story about how the fact that, you know, a small, because of the internet, clearly all things can be blamed on the internet at this point, all because, of, because of the internet, a small, you know, incredibly well-meaning cultural organization got sort of swept up in an international firestorm that it completely did not deserve. and. You know, it was sort of amazing to me that, you know, the BBC initially wrote this up and, you know, the BBC is one of the world's best news services, but they published a fairly misleading short story on this decision. And, you know, I found out what the actual intentions of the orchestra were by writing a five minute email. Um, and so, you know, I think it's very easy to get swept up in these stories when they pop on Twitter or someplace else. Um, but it is so, it's in reality, it's so easy to check the facts and to say that, you know, if this is something that seems totally outrageous, is it actually the transgression that it seems? And yet, you know, it seems like it's very hard for people to do that. It's a, uh, it's a little bit depressing. 
Yes. Um, maybe another thing that can be blamed on the advent of the internet. I think that's just people, Andrew. I think that's just human beings, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> we like to react to people. You know, people like to be mad. Um, and I think that is a... And then the algorithm feeds us more of that. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the, the internet makes us ourselves only more so, I think is the best way to think of it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been several months since the Russia-Ukraine war began, and I've gotten the sense that many of people have sort of filed this in the back of their heads at this point for the lack of a better phrasing. You so mean what are, this particular kerfuffle or the war in general? I guess the war in general. Um, is there, are there any like concrete steps that you think people could take to sort of keep it in the front of people's hands in like a tangible way, in a way that is like productive and constructive? Oh boy, that's a heavy question to ask a you know a humble culture columnist for the Washington Post rather than an international diplomat. Um, I mean, I do think that this is one area where culture can play a constructive role. I mean, there have unfortunately been some more general reactions against Russian artists, Russian art, um, but there are plenty of Russian artists who are dissidents. I mean, one of the members of Pussy Riot uh, managed to sneak herself out of Russia, and you know I would love to see her get opportunities to perform anywhere she wants to in the West. Um, you know, I think that there are traditions. I mean, look, Russia has produced tons of tremendous art and embracing that, embracing contemporary Russian artists, musicians, writers, dancers, actors, um, and making sure that they have a stage, you know, is a way of making a cultural argument about the conflict, um, saying that, you know, Russians can be their great, you know, at their greatest and freest and most productive when they're not under Vladimir Putin's system. Um, I think is a strong sort of cultural argument to make. Um, in the same way, the Biden administration is thinking about uh, making it easier for Russian tech workers to come here. Um, you know, I I think the thing too is really to, you know, siphon off as much Russian talent, give people as many opportunities as possible. Um, I'm not sure I would agree in general that the war is not on people's minds, though. I mean, it's leaving the front pages of newspapers. You know, there's a big vote in Congress about, you know, military aid for uh, Ukrainian forces. And so, you know, I think it's less a matter of keeping the conflict front and center in people's minds, because I do think it is still there, and more about finding ways to proactively and positively engage with Russian people and Russian culture. Yeah, like making sure that um, I think this is something that you mentioned in your column. It's like making sure that you're targeting the right people. Exactly. So, like, yeah. I mean, so much of so much of online politics is just beyond pointless, right? It's you know, doing you know, posting is not politics. Posting is not praxis. Um, it's essentially a form of self amusement for the most part, and so. You know, if you want to, if you care about authoritarian regimes, you know, not having influence on Western culture, um, the most important thing you could probably do is look at America's cultural entanglement with China and the, you know, the decisions that American companies um, have made to appease censorship regimes around the world. If you care about you know, if you care about punishing people for being overly censorious, then you should make sure that the people that you're targeting are actually censorious. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, again, it's, 
I do think where, you know, the nature of the internet comes into play is its speed, right? I mean, I think it's easy to forget. I mean, I don't know how old you are. I'm 37. And so I didn't grow up with the internet, but the sheer amount of time it used to take to get information um, just meant that you were less overwhelmed. There were, it was harder to communicate information quickly. And so, you know, you had time to think. It took effort to sort of express your opinions. It took effort to get information. And so that the pace of information train exchange or information transfer was just necessarily slower. And in some ways, I think that was very healthy. Um, you know, I mean, certainly we're not talking about what it was like during the American Revolution when, you know, Cornwallis could surrender at Yorktown, which could take, you know, literal days for the news to get to New England. And that's with people going, you know, breakneck, um, you know, circuit riding <laughs> speeds. But um, yeah, I think that that tendency towards swiftness, that tendency to need to be first, um, is neither particularly healthy nor particularly interesting. Yeah, maybe, maybe like the, the slower pace that the world used to be like that created better incentives for all of us. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I think it's also, it's it's possible to overly romanticize the past too. I mean, the um, I, I've been reading a lot of Revolutionary War history recently just for fun, because, um, you know, I'm old and that's what you do when you mainline pop culture all day. But, um, you know, it's fascinating realizing, for example, there was this guy named James Callender who essentially ran like the Drudge Report of colonial America. And, you know, the, he's actually sort of the source of um, what were initially rumors about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. He worked with Jefferson, sort of slandered Jefferson's political enemies. And then when he felt like he had lost out on jobs that he thought Jefferson owed him, he turned against him. And so, I mean, we've basically, like, you know, posting and, like, blogging and slandering your political enemies has been part of American politics since the dawn of the Republic. Um, but it definitely couldn't happen quite as fast and it had to happen with, I think, more deliberation and forethought. I realize we've gone very far afield of your initial question. Yeah, but, but that, that's fine. Maybe we could spend this entire episode just going on tangents. Um, tangents are great. Yes. Yeah. Like, for example, do you think there's a broader tendency for like people and organizations nowadays to be performative in order to satiate public demands rather than actually supporting what's going on. Yeah, 100%. And look, I think that, um, I mean, if you look at what's happening with uh, sort of Disney and um, the it, this law in Florida about, um, you know, how teachers can discuss um, sexuality and um, uh, gender identity in schools, you know, Disney as a business doesn't necessarily really have a dog in this fight, right? I mean, they operate a private business, a theme park, um, you know, but there is demand internally from their employees to be outspoken on this and other social issues. Um, and so they end up in a situation where it's not in their direct corporate interest to take on an issue, except in the sense that it potentially affects sort of recruitment or, you know, who stays at the company. Um, that, you know, it's a, so they're caught between, you know, a Republican politician who can cause them one side of, one kind of bad news cycle and their employees who can cause them a different one. And so, you know, I think that 
there are legitimately a lot of pressures on companies and organizations. And sometimes they're sort of, those pressures are working at cross purposes to each other, right? And But I do think that there is, you know, a, a tendency for corporations to make sort of meaningless political statements, um, uh, you know, in order to, I mean, sort of as a form of branding. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have watched Bo Burnham's um, Netflix comedy special Inside, but um, there's he he jokes at one point. Um, you know, he's he's it's a line in a song that he's written where it's like, "In honor of the revolution, it's half off at the Gap." Right? It's like in the idea of offering you know a discount on like cheap clothes in honor of Juneteenth, or you know like Doritos having a stand on Roe v. Wade is, it just, it feels very strange on some level, right? Um, and yet, I think these political performances have become a sort of standard part of marketing to a certain extent. Um, and it's, I mean, it's funny to see big political sentiments be reduced to something like marketing, right? I mean, it's it feels it's simultaneously being presented as, you know, an important, you know, corporate stance. And yet it's also like, it's so trivializing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like, um, it feels so much easier. Um, but the trade-off is that it's, it's mostly just there to be there rather yes. than ref like reflecting a concrete benefit with the world as a whole. Yeah, it's totally, I mean, so much of political performance is just totally ephemeral. Totally ephemeral. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like um, you mentioned in your article about uh, the Cardiff Philharmonic Orchestra that like when it came to like supporting the war effort in like a productive way, one example you've cited was Netflix recording a loss of subscribers because it stopped offering its services in Russia. Um, so to like uh, change the subject again, could you elaborate a little bit about how um, like Netflix, like not offering services in Russia, A, was productive and B, maybe contributed to some of its come down and some of its loss of subscribers last month? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, um, undeniably, you know, Netflix took a big hit from pulling its operations out of Russia. Um, they, you know, they recorded their first ever quarterly loss of subscribers because they lost, um, uh, I think it was 700,000 subscribers in Russia. If not for that, they would have been up about 200,000 for the quarter, which um, would be terrible given their recent growth, but it would still have been an increase. That said, I mean, Netflix is sort of hitting a subscriber wall overall. I think they've estimated that they're going to be down two and a half million subscribers. Um, in the next quarter um and so there's been sort of a more significant streaming uh, realignment or sort of realigned sense of what streaming's value actually is um but you know i thought what was useful about that is i mean it's you know it's a form of um sort of cultural boycott um and those have been uh, you know i think you know it, those can argued have been arguably have been effective in the past via the cultural boycott of south africa um and it's a way of making, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, I don't think Vladimir Putin's sitting around being like, I can't watch Ozark. Oh my God, it's the end of the world. But I do think it signal, you know, it puts pressure on ordinary Russians in a way that 
you know, doesn't necessarily hurt them in the same way that some other trade measures would, but causes an inconvenience, just the level of U.S. disapproval of this action, um, and, you know, is a way of at least indirectly communicating to the Russian public at a time when news in Russia is very, very censored. And so do I think Netflix pulling out of Russia is like the equivalent of sending a bunch of javelins to to Ukrainian forces? No, I don't. Um, But in the menu of options of what a company like Netflix can do, that's probably the most effective thing. And the truth is, you know, companies like Netflix have faced really unpleasant trade-offs from expanding into markets around the world. They have censored episodes of shows at behest of Saudi Arabia, they've gotten caught up in Indian internal politics. Uh, Netflix doesn't operate in China. Um, no, no foreign streamers are licensed to operate in China, which has saved them the trouble of trying to get content approved through what's a notoriously cumbersome process there. Um, but, you know, pulling out of authoritarian regimes also means that companies like Netflix sort of buy back some of their own ability to operate a little bit more freely in terms of what content they put out. And, you know, maybe that content can't be seen in the country um, that takes issue with it um, by licit channels, but at least that stuff can get made and maybe make its way back through YouTube clips or some other means um, if it's important to people. And so, um, you know, I think that kind of disentanglement both sends a message to the people who might have been watching Netflix a month ago, um, or sorry, two or three months ago at this point, um, but also sort of removes a corporate complication for the company. Yeah, um, but obviously that is basically furthering Netflix, basically losing a little bit of its centrality, which it had before. But there was one quote from your article about Netflix's come down that I thought was interesting. So I'm going to quote it right now. Sure. The tipping point between abundance and glut is long past, especially when a lot of what's being released seems more like laundry folding accompaniment rather than ambitious art. The modern golden age of television was defined by rich arguments about game-changing series such as The Wire, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad. Too often, the dominant feeling of the streaming era is puzzlement about why so many people briefly went mad for Tiger King. So maybe that's, would you say that that's one of the downsides of our current streaming model where basically like from the point of streaming services and their profit maximizing algorithm, individual pieces of throwaway content matter more than prestige TV, as long as those pieces of throwaway content can be like popular and trendy in the heat of the moment. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there is just too much content, period, right? I mean, there there are a finite number of human beings in the universe, and they have a finite number of free hours with which to watch all of this stuff. There is no way to build sort of a common cultural conversation anymore. And, you know, Netflix and other streaming services were kind of built on the premise of, so you know, unrestricted growth forever. And that is just mathematically impossible, right? I mean, they were going to keep growing subscribers, they were going to keep spending more money to do it. And at a certain point, that just tops out. There's not, you know, you can make all the content you want, theoretically. You can spend yourself into debt to do it. But there literally just aren't enough eyeballs on the planet to consume all of this stuff um, and for enough people to be watching the same thing so that you can have a conversation about it. Um, and Netflix in particular, because it releases every, you know, every episode of its shows all at once, has a much higher burn rate um, for its content than some place like Disney does. I mean, if you're Disney, you can get eight or ten weeks out of a show like The Mandalorian. Um, with Netflix, you maybe get a weekend. 
um, and then you need to have something new to offer people. And so the spending requirements for Netflix were just much higher. Yeah. But you mentioned something really interesting that I would like to expand on where when it comes to Netflix, they tend to release entire seasons at once. And even if they're breaking away from that a little bit by releasing it into like chunks, like yes. they might be doing recently, that's still a far cry from releasing it weekly, like streaming services like Disney Plus or Paramount Plus, which have staked their entire services on releasing weekly episodes. So what do you do you foresee Netflix switching to a weekly release schedule anytime soon? Probably not. I mean, the binge mode is so associated with their brand that that would almost be a bigger thing. Foregoing that would almost be a bigger deal than starting um, an advertising supported tier of the service, which they are actually rushing ahead to do now. Um, those two things are absolutely critical to the Netflix model and that they are willing to give up on having on keeping ads off the service before they're willing to give up the binge model suggests that the binge model is more important to them. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think that Netflix might have like a substantial comeback in terms of subscriber count or share price anytime within say the next few months, or do you think that's off the table? Um, I mean, look, I'm not a stock analyst. You should not be buying stocks based on what I tell you. Um, in fact, you should be putting all of your money in something indexed to the market and then not touching it for 40 years. But um, yes. <laughs> but uh, look, I think we saw an appropriate correction with Netflix, right? The idea that Netflix is more valuable than Disney, which has an incredibly classic content library, but also has an incredible number of physical assets, um, was just always insane. And so, you know, I think we've seen an appropriate correction in Netflix's stress stock price. I don't think we're going to see a huge rebound in subscribers because what we're seeing in terms of the slowdown is there just aren't that many more subscribers to track down. Netflix will probably do things like crack down on password sharing in an effort to drive some more subscriptions. But I don't know that there are, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to determine exactly how many potential subscribers are out there, but Netflix is probably reaching the limit, certainly reaching the limit within the United States. Yeah. Um, but to switch gears again, because you mentioned Disney and their incredible content library. And part of their content library is obviously the new Doctor Strange movie, which came out recently, which you wrote a column about. Um, you wrote a column about Scarlet, which is character arc in that uh, yes. movie, and how it's like a compelling testament to how magical and uh, transformative motherhood can be. So I guess my final question is, could you elaborate on your take on her character arc in the film? Sure. I mean, I think that... Um... You know, people have had a strong reaction to um, the one Maximoff arc in WandaVision um, and in now in Doctor Strange. Um, and I think that, you know, I understand why people have a little bit of trouble with the cultural script um, for a character, a female character who actually wants to be defined by a partnership and motherhood, right? Pop culture has sort of trained us to expect that for a woman to be empowered in pop culture, she essentially has to have the same goals as a, you know, a typical male character would and pursue them in the same way as through, you know, um, exertions of confidence, through physical strength, through aggressiveness. Um, and so to have a character who, you know, who can literally say, like, I was meant to rule the world, but I don't want it. I just want my boys. I just want to effectively, I just want to be a mom is uncomfortable for some people. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm a mom of two kids and it is a an experience that reorders your priorities and that 
you know, is complicating. It complicates your sense of self. And, you know, I know for moms who have lost kids, that is, you know, it's one of the most profound and disordering losses you can experience. And so, you know, I, I don't think Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is a great movie. I'm not sure I think it's an important movie. But I did think it captured something about being a mom that has previously been kind of verboten in pop culture. I think the really revolutionary thing at this point would be to make a character who is, you know, whose you know, primary investment is in her identity as a mother and a wife and make her the hero, not the villain. Alyssa Rosenberg, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.